G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. One of the biggest global issues, an evil dictator, divided nations, the threat of global nuclear war. You won't want to miss our conversation through this coming hour. How do you identify reasons for hope in the North Korean threat under the leader, one like Kim Jong-un? Well, there is some good news this week. Officials from North and South Korea met yesterday to discuss the logistics of a rare summit later this month, which will see Kim Jong-un become the first North Korean leader to set foot in the South since the end of the Korean War. A date has been set, April the 27th, on the South's side of the demilitarized zone. Now, whenever we talk about North Korea, we always ask Christians to pray for solutions for the tens of thousands of Christian believers held in concentration camps under the tyranny of the North Korean regime. Well, we're looking for reasons for hope today. And the invitation to you is to be part of our conversation. We will open our talkback lines. You might like to contribute on a whole lot of different levels, but especially when it comes to reasons for hope and how you might pray as a Christian believer. Elizabeth Kendall is our guest through this coming hour, international religious liberty analyst and advocate. She serves as director of advocacy at the Canberra-based Christian Faith and Freedom and is an adjunct research fellow at the Arthur Jeffrey Centre for the Study of Islam at Melbourne School of Theology. And so a special welcome back to 2020 to you, Elizabeth Kendall. And thank you for having me, Neil. Elizabeth, always love our conversations. It's not the first time we've talked about North Korea. There's a big backstory in all of this. And I wonder how quickly we can uh, perhaps even just talk about some of the uh, issues of North Korea. In fact, if you can remember those details about revival in North Korea a hundred years ago, as we set the scene for a conversation today, which I believe is going to be largely centered around hope for the situation in North Korea. Well, yes, uh, Korea geographically sits in a really delicate little spot. So it's a little peninsula that sits in between uh, a powerful uh, imperialist uh, China and what was a century ago a powerful and rising imperialist Japan. And so there's been a long history of conflict on the Korean Peninsula, either coming from China or particularly in the last uh, century coming from Japan. And what has happened is that uh, when the, ja- the Japanese occupied Korea, and what this did was it, it caused a Korean Christian movement to really become a grassroots movement uh, linked with, Jap- with Korean nationalism. And in 19, and the reason that this was so is because there'd been a massive revival in, Co- in Korea earlier on. In 1907, uh, there was a massive revival 
in Korea, and it was it started in Pyongyang, or then known as Pyongyang, the capital of today's North Korea. And it was January 1907. There was a Bible class being held, and there was great disunity in the in the young Korean church. And so the leaders came together, and they just prayed for a week ahead of the ahead of the Bible class. They just prayed and prayed for unity um, amongst the churches. And then when the Bible class uh, commenced there was a great outpouring of power from the Holy Spirit that um, convicted people of their sin. And there was weeping and wailing and repentance over sin. And the whole Bible class was just struck with this uh, repentance for sin and sorrow for sin. Uh, people stood up and repented of their hatred of their Christian brothers. Uh, people committed to loving one another. And that was the beginning of a revival that gradually spread right through the Korean Peninsula. And it led to Pyongyang being known as the Jerusalem of the East. And it was only a few years later that Japan invaded Korea. And uh, if you've seen Martin Scorsese's silence, well, you just have to transport that up into the 20th century. And that's what it was like in Korea. It was a brutal, brutal Shinto nationalist occupation and the church was persecuted severely and in that persecution the, per the church then established itself as the hope of the people and, uh, and the religion of the people but of course everything just went from bad to worse and you end up with a divided uh, after World War II a divided Korean peninsula with the Soviet Union and uh, controlling the north and uh, the the Western Alliance uh, controlling up the south and uh, eventually it was split there's been no peace made there's a ceasefire and the country is now divided in two and in the north the church had been virtually eradicated uh, and uh, it re now exists in small pockets of underground believers uh, who need to keep their faith secret in order to survive, while the church in the South has grown and is now the world's second greatest missionary sending country that is uh, sending missionaries overseas and mostly into Central Asia and the Muslim world. So, you know, there's a lot of hope that if um, there can be peace on the Korean Peninsula, it will transform the North spiritually. Well, that was a wonderful, in a nutshell, overview of some history there. And for those who are reading secular commentary in mainstream media, they won't be talking too much about those Christian foundations. And But we can see this as an obvious display of what has happened on the Korean Peninsula because, as you say, Elizabeth Kendall, and so many listeners will resonate with that, uh, that the spirituality in South Korea has been uh, just uh, monumental uh, and even uh, to to talk about uh, what is described as the biggest single church in the whole world under uh, Yongi Cho there, uh, somewhere in the vicinity of a million people, one single church, uh, just an incredible display of uh, of what God has done. But we have this, this crazy idea uh, that the Kims, when they came to power, 
they began to oppress the Christian believers in the north. Now, this is significant, isn't it? As we talk about what hope might, uh, what, what hope might uh, emerge today, because we have to talk about the Kims, uh, and it's been, uh, you know, three generations here in this dynasty. Uh, how do you describe the Kims and their grip on power in North Korea? Well, the Kim's grip on power is uh, pretty solid, I would would say. But then again, you never know what rumbles around in the halls of power. Um, Kim Jong-un has consolidated his grip on power. When he was brought to power in 2011, he walked alongside his father's coffin at the funeral with what was called, oh, now I can't remember their name, the Gang of Six or the Gang of Seven, and um, within a couple of years, half of them were gone. They'd either been demoted or executed. But they have been replaced with younger leaders who are more aware of the need for reform. So while the brutality of the regime has been trumpeted, some of the more interesting occurrence underneath are often overlooked. You have to go to... Uh, long-time career watchers like Andrei Lankov and others uh, to, to get these sorts of um, uh, these bits of news. But the, the thing that's most interesting, I would say, about the Kim dynasty is you have the first generation, the generation of uh, Kim Jong... Kim, Kim Il-sung. Uh, Kim Il-sung, yep. Yeah, Kim Il-sung, the founder or the first leader of uh, North Korea. Now, that generation, they were revolutionaries and they saw war they battled the japanese they battled the americans they were warriors and revolutionaries and they brought in the communist system uh under with soviet and chinese backing the next generation which is the generation of uh kim jong-il uh the son of uh kim kim il-sung uh kim jong-il and most of that generation were were educated either inside North Korea or in Soviet uh, Soviet uh, educational facilities. So they were steeped in communist ideology from birth. Um, the, however, the next generation is different. The next generation, we might call them the princelings, similar to the the new generation that's emerging in China and the new generation that's emerging in Saudi Arabia. These, these people are different. They have been raised in a situation of privilege that they inherited. Uh, they have not seen this sort of conflict. In fact, some, Kim Jong-un was, not, was never meant to be the ruler of North Korea. He was about the third in line, I think, and his quite possibly, I think, is an illegitimate child. He, he was the son of Kim Jong-il's favourite mistress. So he was also treated very specially. And he, did, he was not raised in a Soviet or North Korean educational facility. He got his education in Switzerland. So he spent his years from 11 to, to 19 in Bern, Switzerland. And this is where he became a fan of computer games and of American basketball and of popular music. And he knows full well that there is a world outside North Korea that is completely different. Now, he this has is... had an entire secondary school and early university education that is not only not communist, but it actually has a completely different ideology. This is not going to be an ideological 
person. It's a whole new generation happening here. Now, this is one of the elements here that you identify as something that gives the whole world hope. Because as the North Koreans have been testing their long-range missiles and are able to attach nuclear warheads to those, and the threat of nuclear war is very significant. And as you describe, things could go either very badly or there is a potential for things going very well. And when you talk about... Kim Jong-un and having that Swiss education, uh, the exposure to the outside world, uh, you are suggesting that there is potential here that he may be more interested in survival than maintaining the dynastic ideology. How do you describe that sort of uh, interest that he will have that could actually change things because of his upbringing? Well, I think it's absolutely key. Um, I think he is definitely, primarily, if not 100%, just interested in survival, uh, regime survival. Um, uh, uh, you know, and uh, that's quite understandable. Who would, who would rather be lynched than survive? And the, the key is, you see, there has never been a peace treaty between North Korea and America. So they are still officially actually at war and they, there are these uh, you know, military training exercises which they actually call decapitation drills held off the North Korean coast just outside of North Korean waters uh, regularly. And you know, this is highly provocative. This is like saying we're practicing for when we come and decapitate the regime. So there's this constant threat of American-led regime change. And, you know, we have to admit, whether we like it or not, that the North Koreans have every reason to fear such a thing, that the North Korean rulers have every reason to fear such a thing, and especially today. And the thing is, America, I'm afraid, has done itself terrible damage by what it did in Iraq and what it did in Libya, especially Libya. So in Iraq, there were no weapons of mass destruction found in Iraq, but America went in, changed the regime, and chaos ensued. In Libya, it's even worse. Colonel Gaddafi, uh, fearing and dreading uh, the rise of militant fundamentalist Islam, actually switched sides and became an ally in the war on terror straight after 9-11. He knew what was happening. So he switched sides, and there are... Buckets and buckets of photographs on, on the internet of uh, Tony Blair and Bush and all the leaders having their photo opportunities with Gaddafi and Gaddafi travelling to all the Western capitals and the, you know, the weapons inspectors dismantled everything and took everything away. He gave up all his weapons so that he could be part of the war on terror as part of our alliance. And the Western alliance betrayed him and provided air cover for his enemies, al-Qaeda-linked jihadists, so that he was uh, captured and uh, he was butchered, literally butchered by jihadis, uh, you know, big-bearded Salafi jihadis crying Allah Akbar. And... I tell you what, no one is going to take America's word ever again after something like this. It's going to take a long time for there to be trust. 
So what Kim Jong-il has done is he has established a nuclear deterrent. It's been about survival, not aggression, right from the beginning. It's been about establishing a deterrent so that America cannot come in and decapitate this regime. Uh, we have a deterrent to protect ourselves. And uh, underneath that, there are actually moves afoot to reform the situation inside North Korea and uh, raise the standard of living so that there can be opening. We're talking about the possibilities and hope in the North Korean situation. You might like to join in our conversation. Our talkback line open on 1-800-316-316. You can also leave a question or a comment on our Facebook page. Simply go to facebook.com forward slash vision radio. In fact, one question from Mike on Facebook. Mike says, hi, Elizabeth. Were the Kim family originally Christian? in North Korea. So if we go back to that history, uh, what sort of uh, foundations do, would you uh, imagine and uh, do you know uh, if there are any connections to the Kim family and Christianity? Uh, well, I'm not aware that they were. I'm pretty sure that um, uh, Kim, Kim Il-sung was, I think, he was born and raised in the Soviet Union, actually. I know I'd have to double-check that. I don't have that in front of me. But from my memory... Um, while this is disputed, and it certainly doesn't fit in with the North Korean like mythology, I think that there is a high degree of suspicion that he was actually born and raised in the Soviet Union. So he was prepared as an atheist and as a Soviet uh, proxy uh, right from the beginning. I'm not aware that there has been any Christianity. But, you know, it's really, really interesting because it was Kim Jong-il in the year, around about the year 2000, which was the last time there were real positive moves towards um, an, an opening up and, uh, and moves towards peace, was the year 2000, Kim Jong-il gave permission for Chinese Christians, or Chinese American they might have been, Christians, to, f to build a university of technology in Pyongyang that is funded by Christians, Chinese Christians or Chinese-American Christians, and staffed by Christians. So, you know, I don't think there's as much... I think the, the issue is always, are you threatening the regime? And if you are, then you're, you're dead. Um, it's, a, it's a very interesting and mysterious situation. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020... On Vision. Elizabeth Kendall is our guest this hour, international religious liberty analyst and advocate. We are talking about North Korea and we're talking about hope for the North Korean issues. And of course, these are global issues when we talk about evil dictators and the threat of global nuclear war, these are all very much a reality. Elizabeth Kendall, before we move on, because there's so much to talk about with some of these issues of hope emerging, let's talk about Christian believers and the power of prayer for a few moments. Uh, you're always encouraging believers to be on their knees in prayer for major situations, especially when there are Christians who are affected by way of the persecution that goes on under an evil regime like the North Korean regime. What's your encouragement to listeners to our conversation today that we actually all have a role here too and it's in prayer? 
Yes, this is, prayer is one of the great mysteries of the universe. You know, the fact that we have a God who intervenes and acts and yet calls us to pray and then answers our prayers. It's a wonderful way that God seems to desire that we become involved and aware of his handiwork. Otherwise, we'd just often, often be oblivious to the whole uh, moving of God, but he invites us to be involved. And his way of working is through the answering of prayer. And often what God does when he's about to do something is he gives it into the hearts of Christians to pray. And the Christians will say, we really feel burdened about praying for this. And they'll call prayer meetings and they'll pray about it. And lo and behold, God answers their prayer. And uh, it's part of the mystery of how God invites his church to be involved in his workings. You know, I, I think back of there, there was an incredible time uh, in uh, 2005 when the Arab Islamic government of Sudan signed a memorandum of agreement with the government of South Sudan, with the um, uh, SPLA, the, the, um, the SPLM, the Sudan People's Liberation Movement. And what this memorandum of agreement did was it allowed South Sudan uh, to be at peace, it ended the civil war, and it, uh, it created an autonomous region. So South Sudan became autonomous, and the Sudanese troops had to leave. Now, the talks that led up to that agreement went on for years and as I was working the prayer bulletin through those years I just absolutely committed to making sure that every time that uh, every time there were meetings to be held every time there would be talks we would be praying about it and there would always be a prayer bulletin before every uh, significant development in talks and we did that for for years and uh, and it came to pass, and, and the, the agreement was signed. And it wasn't, it wasn't something you could have taken for granted. There were stormouts and walkouts and times when the government of Sudan tore up the deal, but it, it came, came to be. And I believe that it's the responsibility of the church to, uh, to pray intelligently uh, through everything, because this is a spiritual warfare and the devil is in there. The devil is in there in all his strength, with all his forces, seeking to bring havoc and pain and death and destruction. And uh, God is at work in the world, and he calls on us to be involved, and we are involved through prayer. And it's through prayer that people go out as missionaries. It's through our prayers that people go out in aid. It's through our prayers that peace talks uh, succeed that probably wouldn't have otherwise and I'm absolutely committed now to praying through this uh, these next inter-Korean inter summit, the meeting with Trump at every stage uh, the church must be praying through it and I believe that it's very possible that we might see God do a really great work here. Sometimes we're immersed in our local issues. This is a global issue, and if there is an issue that we ought to be remembering in our prayers, it's the issue of how we avoid a global nuclear war, and uh, that would be a good reason to pray. We've mm. been talking about Kim Jong-un. We've been talking about a different upbringing 
that he is likely more interested in survival than in ideology. He's just one of the players here that uh, shows a glimmer of hope, if that is a glimmer of hope. Uh, There's also other players in this mix. Donald Trump, a different president than anyone expected. Is there some glimmer of hope here? Uh, even with his antagonistic way of uh, of displaying his leadership. Uh, Elizabeth Kendall, is there a glimmer of hope that we ought to be thinking of with the Donald Trump approach to these things? Well, I believe that there is. Uh, Donald Trump is a businessman. He's brash. He says it as it is. I wouldn't be surprised if Kim Jong-un actually is really attracted to Donald Trump and really likes him and respects him. I would not be surprised if that is the case. Whereas other leaders who have been appeasing and equivocating, I would think, have been despised. So I think there's actually a new dynamic here. Not only is, is uh, President Trump completely unconventional, but he's at the very beginning of his, um, of his term. So it's not like in the other two times when there have been summits, when uh, presidents have been at the end of their eight-year term, they've tried to grab a bit of legacy, um, and then there's been a change of government and it's all gone down the drain. It's all been unwound. He's at the beginning of his term. So is Kim Jong-un, really, and so is North Korea's leader, Moon Jae-in. And, in fact, so is President uh, Xi, Xi, rather, um, the Chinese president, really at the start of something. So we have time. You know, any other president, when he'd been given an invitation to meet with Kim Jong-un, would have said, oh, yes, okay, I'll consider that. I'll just have to talk to my advisers. And, of course, the advisers would have, you know, who knows what they would have said. They probably would have said no. But he heard the invitation and he immediately took it upon himself to agree. No other American leader would have done that. And I believe it's opened a door. And, you know, President, I read someone say the other day, what Trump has done is straight out of his first and most successful book, The Art of the Deal, uh, where he talks about... um, reaching for the stars, knowing you'll have to accept the moon. You go for everything you can, you throw it all out there, and then, but you're actually underneath it, aiming for something else. And I believe he's done that. And some of my favourite commentators throughout last year, as the tensions were ramping up, ramping up, and everyone thought, heck, there's going to be a war. Uh, some of my favourite commentators were referring to this as theatre, as theatre towards the ultimate uh, outcome, which would be talks. Uh, talks that would be unpalatable, but a better option than war. So there's a quite an, uh, this idea that all along we've been setting up this horrendous scenario so that we can now accept something else. And that something else may very well be the, the opening up slowly and possibly some unpalatable things like keeping the, re- the Kim da- you know, regime in power, something many Americans do not want to even consider, but hey, it's better than war. And most of 2017 was spent, was spent thinking about what war might look like. So I think there is a fair bit of theatre involved, and I think no other president would have done this. This has only happened because Donald Trump is more of a business dealer 
wheeler dealer than he is a politician. Elizabeth, before we take another step further, let's take a call. Kuma, uh, Coral in Kuma is on the line. Hello, Coral. Welcome along to 2020. Hello. Coral, Hello. what are your thoughts? Look, I only just want to bring to your attention... Um, Look, I've been reading Just As I Am by Billy Graham. It's one of the autobiographies about him. And he, Chapter 34, is all about um, when they visited North Korea and had contacts with South Korea and things like that. And I remember reading it, and it might have been um, when they had... um, a nuclear threat around about 2010 or 11, something like that. But I was reading the book right then, and I've got it in front of me at the moment. And Billy Graham got into, um, whenever he got into North Korea and everything, he got in because Ruth Bell Graham, his wife, had gone to school in a place in North Korea, and they had all sorts of contacts in that. And one of it was... um, when he visited the um, leader, they served him watermelon. And Billy Graham said in the book, he'd never tasted such delicious watermelon in his life. And so they gave him a whole lot of watermelon um, to take home. And I'm always trying to follow Weight Watchers Diet, if you can get that, which, of course, watermelon's a good product for... And it was like, I don't know what what it did, but everyone was a little bit scared of all that nuclear um, situation. (laughs) But but I was reading this book and I thought, goodness, and so you could pray really easily. It was amazing. Coral, you are raising actually quite a significant point. The idea that uh, the way to an evil dictator's heart may well be through things that taste nice like watermelon. Let me get a, a comment here from Elizabeth Kendall because when we're talking about public relations and goodwill and what may be coming with talks, uh, not only uh, the talks that might be ahead with Donald Trump, but uh, but with the South Korean president, uh, these sorts of goodwill opportunities can go a long way, can't they? Oh, I think they can, obviously. And I think there's actually a, quite a good deal of goodwill. Uh, and the, but the politics gets in the way. And the, uh, the fact that there's never been a peace treaty gets in the way. And, and you know, the... Uh, I think the goodwill is genuinely there, and I think that I think it's like being trapped in this in a cycle of destruction. And how do you get out? How do you get off this merry-go-round? Um, and it hasn't been an easy thing. I think there's probably more willingness than most people realise for inside North Korea, inside the regime, even, even to come in from the cold. But they don't want to risk their lives to do it. I mean, obviously, no one wants to risk being lynched in the street. So they, but I think they do want to come in from the cold. They want to retain their independence and not be a patsy or a proxy of any other great power. Uh, they don't want to risk regime change. They don't want to risk linking, uh, lynching. 
But I think they do actually want to come in from the cold and open up a bit. Thank you so much to Coral from Kuma. A a great illustration, actually, of what a difference it can make when there are talks and friendships develop. Because the idea of friendships here, and as you say, there may be need for a lot of things, uh, areas of compromise and a regime to stay in place, but it does... Uh, give the opportunity to alleviate the idea of nuclear war. Uh, we're talking about the characters involved here, Kim Jong-un. We've been talking about Donald Trump and his different approach. There's also a new approach that comes because of the South Korean president, the popular Moon Jae-in, uh, who would like to see some family reuniting happening between the two Koreas. Uh, your thoughts on Moon Jae-in and his role, Elizabeth Kendall? Uh, Yes, well, actually, Moon Jae-in was elected in May after the previous uh, um, uh, uh, government was uh, kicked out and and, uh, there was uh, corruption charges and everything. So Moon Jae-in was elected uh, overwhelmingly in May, and he is a completely different sort of president to the two uh, presidents that they've had previously. So they've had two presidents that have been very confrontational with North Korea and there's been lots of foul language flying both ways. Uh, Moon Jae-in is really deeply invested in detente or, uh, you know, easing of relations on the peninsula because he is personally and emotionally invested in it. He is the son of North Korean refugees. So his parents, um, they fled North Korea uh, during the war, uh, during the early stages of the war, uh, from the town of uh, Hungnam, which is on the east coast of North Korea. That's a coastal, coastal city. And then uh, Moon Jae-in was born in South Korea about a, a two years later. So he is the son of North Korean refugees, So he grew up with parents who have been separated from their loved ones who are still on the other side of the border. He knows what this pain is because he has lived with it. Uh, He would know other people who are um, in the North Korean refugee community um, who are now South Koreans whose loved ones are on the other side of the border. This is something that he has seen and he understands. His father has died, but he has promised his 90-year-old mother that if there can be uh, an easing of tensions on the Korean Peninsula, the first thing he will do is that he will take her home to her hometown of Hungnam on the eastern coast, about 300 kilometres northeast of Pyongyang. So he is personally invested uh, in this. And he's right, like Donald Trump, he's right at the beginning of his term. So he has years to work on this. He's not going to have it all undone by a new government, you know, in in a few months' time. This is just, this process is just starting. These leaders are deeply invested. And um, I really believe that this is a window of opportunity that we may never see. Uh, We certainly have not seen anything like this to date. And I don't think we can just assume we would have another one. Uh, let me just continue to bring this thread of prayer into our conversation today uh, because every listener listening to our conversation uh, perhaps has never even considered these things uh, and we are also in the firing line if there is a nuclear war. So we are really a part of the story here. And as we talk about hope, we're hearing about the changes of personalities who are involved 
potential for some change for the future. Sometimes I think when we pray, we're often praying into what might be crisis situations, into the worst circumstances, and oftentimes we feel like we have no hope in our prayer. We're surprised then when God answers our prayers. But in one sense, when we pray, there is a sense, isn't there, that when we pray, we can pray and this could be controversial, but pray prophetically and with the expectation that good will come of our prayers and the idea that there could be peace on the Korean Peninsula, the alleviation of nuclear war. I wonder what the prospects might be if there is peace on the Korean Peninsula and as inspiration for Christian believers to pray, what ought you be thinking about as the possibility for good things to come? Oh, absolutely. And, um, you know, the thing is, if there is a real peace on the Korean Peninsula, it could economically transform North Korea, which would be just absolutely brilliant. Now, uh, we're not going to... I don't believe we will get a, a denuclearization. I believe that, that that might be one of those things that's constantly held over. Uh, you know, this is something we can talk about when we feel secure, and uh, until we feel secure, then we need our nuclear weapons. And, you know, we accept a lot of countries being nuclear armed. Lots of countries have nuclear weapons. So we just might have to accept North Korea having nuclear weapons. Uh, we're not going to see reunification in, in terms of Korea becoming one big country. I think what the best we can hope for is that we might have two states or two even two independent countries that are on good terms with each other but the thing is that at the moment south korea is like an island because um, if it wants to send goods say to say to europe it has to put them on a ship and take them way 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 around uh towards europe it can't do anything perishable um and it can't move anything quickly uh and it's the same with japan but if, if North Korea and South Korea became, uh, had reduced tensions and could work together, then, North, then the rail lines between North and South Korea could be uh, opened up and you would have a rail that goes into China and links up to the... It's already connected. It just needs to be opened. The Trans-China Railway. You've also got a railway that links to the... Trans-Siberian Railway. So the whole idea that Japan and South Korea would now be able to send cars and perishables to Europe uh, by, via high-speed rail would become a possibility. And North Korea would still need to be fairly autonomous at this point because the standard of living is so much lower. If it was too open, there'd be a flood of refugees across north and south borders. So it would still need to remain fairly closed, possibly for decades. Uh, but all the time, the uh, economic situation would be reviving. And I believe that if, if the regime actually feels safe and supported with its goal of raising the standard of living, then we'll see greater and greater freedoms all the time. Um, uh, and I think we could see real change. And the prospect, Elizabeth Kendall, that God is doing something significant mm. for the North Korean people 
who undoubtedly, and uh, I've mentioned tens of thousands uh, in concentration camps, and you've mentioned the underground church that mm. is in North Korea and this rich history of having had a revival and then the oppression that came uh, from the Japanese. Uh, for God to be able to revive a very good we'd call it a blessing for North Korea. This may be something that inspires the prayers of believers uh, with the expectation that God is doing an amazing thing for North Korea, even though these hardships now are the current situation. Oh, yes, and it would be not even just amazing for North Korea. Uh, It would be amazing for the whole world. I mean, uh, as I said before, South Korea is one of the world's uh, most Christianized uh, peoples and one of the world's greatest missionary-sending nations. Um, so just imagine if this, uh, this, uh, the Christianization spreads up through North Korea, and they, North Koreans, they don't have to go very far in their history to realize that this is actually their roots and their heritage. Their roots are in Christianity. Their heritage lies in Christianity. Their capital, Pyongyang, was once known as the Jerusalem of the East. This is not a foreign religion. It's the religion of the Korean people. It was integrally linked to Korean nationalism. It's not, I find it not the least bit difficult to, in my mind, see a Korean peninsula that is, Christian from north to south and that Christianity spreading then through the Belt Road initiative right out into Central Asia and up into Siberia and into some of those harsh regions that that Russia is now developing in its far east. You know, I think this would be an amazing thing for the world and I think the the world will see it. And now this is not a short-term thing. This is what people need to understand. You don't say... Dear God, please um, bring Christianity to North Korea, amen, and expect it to be done tomorrow. It's not like that. This is something we will be praying through, and people have been praying for it for decades. So there's this great, like, you know, the, the scales, you know, in heaven, you know, when, where, where, the, where the people cry, how long, O oh Lord? And God, you know, reminds them, you know, that I am working all things together for good. The time is not quite right. But when the time is right, when all things are in place, God will do it. He will do it. I absolutely believe that. And we need to be praying all the way through it. So we pray through all the peace talks. And if there can be an opening up and an easing of tensions, then we continue to pray. Even as North Korea stays fairly closed and fairly isolated, We are patient, knowing that God is at work. It's not going to be transformed overnight. It will be decades. This is a project for for a whole generation. Uh, to bring generational change. We're taking calls, 1-800-316-316. Solomon is on the line from Sydney. Hello, Solomon. Welcome along. Yeah, good morning, uh, Neil. Good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, Good morning, uh, Elizabeth. Good morning. Uh, Just uh, a couple of quick comments. Uh, Neil, you you mentioned something about prophetic prayers. Uh, That is... uh, a biblical pattern that uh, we have been praying in in regards to North Korea. We we are linked with missionaries in uh, North Korea that departed our our small church in in um, 
the back of uh, Kellyville here uh, in 2014. So these were uh, a young couple, and they left. They didn't have any children. They had left saying goodbye for good, knowing mm-hmm. that they will be there until until the Lord uh, takes them. Mm-hmm. So uh, we pray prophetically uh, in terms of the biblical patterns, knowing that mm-hmm. what the Lord teaches us, we... Uh, See what we're praying for, the answers to our prayers, and so we we receive the answers to our prayers. And so yeah. for us, it's it's the it's the loosening of the communism uh, communistic ideologies, and uh, and uh, basically the the revival of the underground church in North Korea and the spread of the gospel right throughout into the leadership. Now uh, it's interesting you, you shared about. Uh, uh, Donald Trump being the businessman, uh, I actually see, um, I'm going to pray in that regard, seeing uh, his business advisors wringing their hands together. What an opportunity in North Korea to bring business connect from the U.S. to uh, North Korea. It needs mm-hmm. a lot of uh, infrastructure and so on and so forth, uh, revived and built. Now, in, in terms of uh, the, the South Korean president, Moon Jae-yang, it's it's uh, yeah it, it's very personal for him. Yeah. So we are praying that in that regards that the uh, the hotheads will be cooled and, yes. and uh, they will they will see the the, the spiritual realm of, of the spiritual ties. Of Solomon, the, you're sharing some wonderful things there, and let me commend you uh, as someone who, in your local church, you've sent missionaries to North Korea and. And I guess this is one of those things that happens when you begin to pray for a nation like North Korea too. People hear from God and they will go and they will serve and they will even sow their lives into uh, what God calls them to. Solomon, thank you so much for your contribution today and for sharing those things with us. Uh, Elizabeth Kendall, we're running out of time, but a quick thought for Solomon. Oh, that was wonderful. I really enjoyed that, Um, Solomon. That was so encouraging. Um, my prayer bulletin that I put out, my most recent one on North Korea, I put out on the Religious Liberty Prayer Bulletin list just in March. And the prayer points include um, that we pray and ask God to sustain and richly bless the long-suffering and severely persecuted Revenant Church in North Korea, and that we ask God to intervene creatively in the Korean Peninsula according to his perfect wisdom in line with his boundless grace to bring peace, transformation and liberty to the glory of his name and that we ask God to take and use the North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, US President Donald Trump and South Korean President Moon Jae-in as his own instruments for his own purpose in answer to the prayers of many and, you know, I believe that that's a good way to pray. And um, I was really courage, encouraged listening to you. So thank you for calling in. Thank you so much, Solomon. Uh, just a couple of minutes remaining in our conversation. And I, I've got a big issue that I still want to cover with you. So a quick response, Elizabeth, because you identify uh, something that even in line with what uh, Solomon was sharing, a tantalizing prospect 
that through these initiatives that are coming up, these meetings uh, with the South Koreans, the potential for the meeting with Donald Trump, that it may take North Korea away from its alignment with Mm -hmm. communist China and the sphere of influence that comes there and even uh, to Russia. And this may actually change the whole dynamic as well. A quick response, Elizabeth. Oh, that just gives me goosebumps thinking about it. Uh, Russia is already to uh, engage with uh, the whole Korean peninsula in terms of the Trans-Siberian Railway to take Korean and Japanese goods to Europe and through the building and development of gas and oil pipelines that will uh, uh, deal, deal with Korea's energy issues. So Russia is ready to engage. Now, the reason Kim went to China was because China invited him uh, they called him in. They're trying to um, they're trying to provide leverage. They're trying to keep themselves uh, involved. But really, what we're seeing here is the prospect that North Korea could actually be drawn out of China's uh, grip and into the, our relationship with South Korea and uh, and Russia that would actually uh, be a far more Christian and America, of course. Uh, all Christian uh, regimes or Christian powers, if you know, you know, Judeo-Christian and Orthodox Christian powers, this could be a completely different dynamic. And, you know, we need to be think people, some people just want to bomb the place. And I think, no, think of the people. And some people say, we've got to get rid of Kim. And I say, no, that will start a war. Think of the people. Think of the North Korean people. Just think about it. Think about this country uh, coming out of the cold. It's people hearing the gospel and pray to that end. Elizabeth Kendall, when we said at the beginning of our conversation we were looking to talk about reasons for hope, and wow, I just love the conversation we have had today. And I know listeners too, if you've been listening since the beginning, you'll have recognized just where hope does lie in this threat to the whole world. Global nuclear war is the threat. An evil dictator in Kim Jong Un. Well, there is true hope in the sorts of things we've been discussing today. Mm. And it's hope that will, I believe, and I would encourage listeners to be prayerful about in your own personal prayer time, but also in your local church in prayer times that you have together to keep this North Korean issue to the fore. I'll point people to elizabethkendall.com. Uh, and that's a place where you can uh, you can get some uh, links to uh, the Religious Liberty Prayer Bulletin and you can find out great insights into developments that are happening around the world. And uh, oftentimes, uh, as we say, sometimes we're talking about negative things, but so many positives that you'll find when you link with Elizabeth Kendall, elizabethkendall.com. Uh, a couple of books to mention quickly. Turn Back the Battle, Isaiah Speaks to Christians Today and After Saturday Comes Sunday, Understanding the Christian Crime in the Middle East. We have run out of time. Elizabeth Kendall, thanks so much for being with us again today on 2020. And thanks again for the opportunity, Neil. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.